Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. This week we'll chat bailouts, both for students and for universities. We'll catch up on the latest developments on admissions. And September, what will it look like? It's all coming up. You can't leave this to the market. You can't leave it to the interests of individual institutions. You have to have some coordination by policymakers that actually looks after the health of the sector as a whole, rather than letting the strongest you know, voices, the most dominant voices, which tend to be prestigious institutions, define a system that suits them. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson and here to remember to unmute their mics. As usual, we have three fabulous guests. Uh, in Brighton, sector student experience expert Michelle Morgan is here. Michelle, your reason to be cheerful this week? Well, I've been following Captain Tom the last two weeks, which has been great. And I'm just hearing the fabulous stories of kindness and gratitude of people has been heartwarming. And in Lancaster, Professor of Higher Education at Lancaster Uni is Paul Ashwin. Paul, your reason to be cheerful. Um, well, I'm not very good at being cheerful, but um, I guess the current situation really emphasises the way in which we're not isolated individuals, we're all connected together. And in relation to higher education, that really emphasises the ways in which universities work and fit in their local communities. And there's been some really interesting and exciting things going on with universities working with the areas where they're located. Lovely. And in Dursley, David Kernahan is Wonky's associate editor. DK, your reason to be cheerful. Well, thank you for asking, Jim. Um, I've been really pleased to see the response that the pieces that we're putting up are getting on Wonky. It's really glad to feel like we are of help. And on a more personal note, my local curry house and my local pub are both doing deliveries. <laughs> Excellent. So, yes, we start this week with the university bailouts. UCU and London Economics have an analysis of the size of the hole that needs plugging. Uh, news has emerged that there is a lack of enthusiasm for UK's proposals in government. And NUS has published its own plans for a student bailout. DK, talk us through it. Well, what a mess, eh? Um, I guess we start with today's news, the front page of the FT that's been followed up everywhere else that suggests that the requests for a bailout are not being met with much sympathy from the Treasury. The bailout in question is the one that came from Universities UK just before Easter. The two big chunks of that were the doubling of QR, which is the second leg of the double stream research funding linked to ref results, and a voluntary cap on undergraduate recruitment, which will be the uh, projection for 2020-21, you remember those really over-the-top uh, projections that we got um, a summary published by OFS, uh, plus another 5%, just to make sure, since so it's a huge cap, and as we set out on the site this morning, doesn't really make much difference, especially if, as expected, recruitment levels drop. Uh, we've also seen uh, a suggestion from National Union of Students. They've called for every student to have the option to redo the 2019-20 academic year at no further at no further cost and with full maintenance support. 
Uh, there's also a call for a student hardship fund and an economic package covering training and development for people that are graduating this year. There's clearly a lot at stake here. Um, it's no exaggeration to say providers are at risk and students and graduates are liable to be strongly affected by COVID-19 and the after effects. The government clearly does need to do something here. It doesn't look like the existing stuff that applies to everybody is going to quite meet the purposes of a sector which even the Office for Budgetary Responsibility says um, is looking at a 90% cut in income. So, so so, my sense of that UK paper, clear, clearly it was great to have a paper, clearly they're trying to work with a number of different constituencies and it was important to get something out there. The element I found a bit disappointing is this sense that it's still very much focused on the specialness of HE, what HE needs in order to carry on as much as possible as business as usual, rather than taking as opportunity to say, actually, look, these, this is how higher education can work differently in order to respond to this crisis. And there was far more detail about what universities needed than there was about actually what universities could do to help with the situation beyond saying what they currently do and why that might be useful in the current situation. The University UK proposal did provide very generic and brief statements about the retention and recruitment of students. And that included a proposal for a one-year cap on undergraduate recruitment. I would have liked to have seen much more practical um, ideas of how the next academic year was going to maybe roll out and how as a sector we could have agreed a consensus um, to move forward. What I found very interesting was that the proposal didn't mention postgraduate taught recruitment and maybe that's where some universities will hope will hope to make up the financial gaps. DK, clearly, there's you know, you know the, the, there are different ways to structure any kind of bailout or you know a package that would you know suit different agendas. You know, there's the leveling up agenda, there's the uh, value for money agenda, there's the uh, preserve research capacity. I mean, there's all sorts of agendas that you could. Uh, either you know harm or, or or benefit depending on how you structure this sort of thing. there is a million different ways to structure a potential uh, bailout to deal with a million different situations and a million different uh, priorities that you might have in the sector it's the last one for me is key it's a question of ideology there's been a resistance in recent years to think of sector capacity or sector delivery as something that can be planned but a tendency to let the market uh, 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 work its magic and sit back and enjoy the proceeds. Arguably, this is why we're in the problem where we are now. We don't know the way the market is going to react and we need to step in. But we have the ability in doing this to get our hands on the uh, uh, planning lever to think about the kind of graduates we are going to need to uh, rebuild society, to think about the kind of research capacity we're going to need, to think about benefits that providers have on their local environments as well. All of this needs to be considered and the government needs to make a thoughtful and decisive action based on a plan. And, and Paul, I see that, that you know a number of bits of the press coverage uh, uh, raise the spectre of you know this 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 direct attack on and need to tackle uh, poor value courses again. Yeah, and and, and, and there's going to be various elements to that. So the pausing of the TEF will have raised an, a number of cheers amongst a number of groups. But you need to be careful what you wish for. The most obvious thing to replace a full scale TEF will be something looking at the salaries that students earn after graduation, which is kind of the definition of low value courses that, that, that is used. But interestingly, the current situation has 
you know, help to show what a nonsense that is. Students graduating this year are likely to earn far less than students in previous years just because of the situation. Nothing to do with the quality of, the, of their education. So, you know, there's kind of, you know, the, the, there's, there's things that, you know, might push towards low value courses, but actually the underlying logic has been completely taken away from, from that way of thinking about the benefits of higher education. Interestingly, you mentioned the different agendas that, that a bailout could focus on. And within the UK paper, you can see tension between those different agendas. So when the benefits of higher education are set out, it starts very much with what higher education does as educational institutions. When they move to focus on what do we want, it's about universities as research institutions. So you can see a tension between different types of institution in the way that's portrayed. And there's some funny positions that, that UUK take up in that paper. So it's really odd to read them defining what the student interest is. In a number of places in that paper, they, they, see, you know, they define the student interest. They also talk about how they're going to work with FE colleges, but it's very much HE directing. So, so for me, that tone was wrong. You know, it shouldn't have been about the benefits that to HE, HE as a leader. It should have been universities as an integral part of a wider collective effort to respond to the crisis. The, the student interest is pivotal. I think this is why the NS, the NUS report on COVID is so important. It's a critical document because for the first time, it really does bring the student voice to the current debate on how we move forward. And it does lay out some very clear suggestions of support. It includes offering students the chance to repeat a year if they wish to, with no further cost, providing further grants for those who complete their qualifications to undertake further training, reskilling or development. And this could be very helpful to universities in terms of final year students deciding to continue on to postgraduate taught study or further study. It, it's almost like providing a similar grant scheme um, in 2015-16 for the postgraduate taught um, before the introduction of the loan scheme. But I think for both of these issues, um, there are real structural issues regarding the delivery of the upcoming academic year that we really need to talk about, we really need to address, and we need to scenario plan alongside the request for extra funding. COVID-19, it requires us to think differently for the first time in a long time, to get off the conveyor belt of what we normally do. You know, unprecedented times require unprecedented action and thinking. I think that's right. And, 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 you know, what I found interesting about the NUS proposals is, is when I first read them, you know, my kind of reaction was a really kind of defensive HE insider. Well, that's not going to happen. And then if you stand back, you actually think, well, why shouldn't that happen? You know, lo lots of unusual things that were unthinkable before are happening. And actually, we need to think more radically about how higher education might respond rather than trying to think about how we can get back to as close to business as normal as quickly as possible. Good. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Lizzie Gadd. I work at Loughborough University as a research policy manager, and I've worked to support scholarly communication for pretty much my whole career. And frankly, for all of that time, I've been banging the drum for open access to scholarship. And my wonky piece this week expressed my frustration that for 20 years, there have been two big buts that have stifled progress on this agenda. One is but publishers and the impact of open access on the economy, subtext publications are for profit and one around but academic careers and how researchers rely on publications in glamorous journals to progress subtext 
publications offer credit. And I argue that in the context of a pandemic, where we are still begging publishers for access to our own research in order to save humanity from an unnecessary death, we have to put our foot down and say no more buts. Scholarly communication should be driven by one thing only, and that is how can we best allow scholars to communicate with each other? And I go on to describe how open research platforms are the best way of achieving this. And I plead with UKRI to adopt this approach in their forthcoming open access policy. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, the moratorium on unconditional offers continues and there's some concern about the government's promise that students will be able to retake A-levels in the autumn. Michelle, what is where are we, where are we up to on all of this? Well... With the announcement of the cancellation of exams, schools and colleges have been working flat out to devise alternative assessments. For schools and colleges, the A-level qualifications that will ordinarily be based on examinations only will now be assessed on a range of metrics, including mocks, coursework and predicted grades. However, across the school and college sector, there are concerns about the practicality of teacher assessments and the ranking of students effectively. You've got to remember this is an activity schools are not used to doing. So this, along with the extension of the moratorium on conditional, unconditional and unconditional offers and almost no change to the admission cycle timeline. You know, the question is, how will the recruitment process for universities play out this year? It wasn't a surprise to me that as soon as the announcement was made that universities should close, we saw an immediate increase in conditional, unconditional offers being made. You know, you know, I've written in the past in defence of conditional, unconditional and unconditional offers. But I really do feel this is one time when the moratorium should be extended until after clearing because the offer in this instant has most certainly not been done on contextual grounds. Understandably, UCAS is trying to maintain the stability in the admissions process and carry on as normal. You know, it is about trying to create that um, stability and confidence in the system. However, COVID is throwing all of that to the wind. UCAS announced last Saturday that students will now have until the 18th of June to make their decisions and that the confirmation and clearing process will start on the 6th of July. What's not clear about the 6th of July is whether the self-release system will also be available or whether or not this scheme that was introduced last year will actually be put on hold. But the reality is we just do not know how the majority of applicants who will be entering HE with A-levels that rely on examinations only are going to respond. David's piece this morning on Wonky, Does the Cap Fit, was both insightful and um, a bit depressing. What, what we have to remember, though, is that many students will not have to take exams as part of their main assessment qualification. For example, let's look at BTEC and Level 3 diploma students, who are the next biggest entry qualification. They mainly undertake coursework, so this group of students needn't be problematic in terms of the qualification outcomes achieved. Neither should the A-level that require a portfolio of continuous work. And ironically, these are the ones that receive the majority of unconditional related offers that people complain about. What worries me, though, is critically what is missing from the sector discussions is the timing between the admissions process and when new students start. If you go to UUK and the QAA websites, they don't really have much guidance and advice on this. The QAA website have a number of resources, but when you click onto the admissions, induction and transitions resources, the PG awards, experience and academic standards and supporting student achievement, all you get is a mass message that the resources will become available in the next few weeks. Now, as a transition specialist, this is what I would advise to support recruitment 
progression and retention of our students. I would argue phase back students over a term. And let's start with the new students excluding the direct entries. I'll talk about them later. For level new level three and four undergraduate entrants and postgraduate talk students start the mid-January. What this allows is for the admissions process for undergraduates and postgraduates to continue through to late November. You know, we can't think that the UK is going to be alone in the chaos of the admissions process, because even if some countries who may be clear of COVID and can actually open their borders, you know, it's no good if the countries of the students who would normally go to their universities, their borders are still closed. So that's not going to happen. So what this does by having a mid-January start is provide space and time for A-level appeals to take place and any opportunity, if offered, for an applicant to take and undertake an examination in the autumn, which has been promised by the Department of Education and Ofqual, or a university exam. However, it is important to note that The Guardian has just reported that examination boards are becoming reluctant to support autumn examinations. What a January start also does, though, it provides breathing space for applicants to think about options and for those unable to find employment between graduation and Christmas. And we know that is potentially going to be a struggle and that can give them the time to maybe think about further study. If the grants the NUS suggest are made available, this will really help. If international movement is not lifted fully by September, but there is some movement, it provides time for international applicants to make arrangements to come in January. It's also important to avoid these students starting their courses online because what we cannot make assumptions is about their digital, their learning digital native capacity or their access to resources. And if we are talking about getting a cohort together, that we can engage and we can create a connectedness with, the connectedness with, then there needs to be really, you know, a bringing together of that cohort, which is probably face to face. And lastly, the direct entry applicants to level five and six could start in mid to late October when returning students could be phased back. This is if we are actually able to bring the international students back at the same time. Well, yeah, I mean, so there you go. So first years. Uh, don't start till January. DK, Paul, is that, is, that, is, is that possible, do you think? I have to say that I like Michelle's idea a lot. I think starting in January is the right thing for new students, and I think a staggered start is the right thing for existing students. However, as always with these things, the problem comes with uh, paying for it. And in the spirit of cooperation, I'd like to tender a solution. Because uh, a start in January means that a big check from the SLC will not be arriving in September, as anticipated, it leaves universities with an acute short-term cash flow problem. I think the answer to this is a loan, uh, which could be used to keep staff paid and to uh, work on preparations for the, the January start. Um, I think this should be linked to future income and spread out over a long time, something like 30 or 40 years, the same way as we do for students. And there should also be a threshold if a, a provider is struggling for other reasons that shouldn't necessarily have to go under just because it's got this particular loan. Um, it's likely many universities will try and do this on the bonds market, always private uh, private borrowing anyway, so they might as well benefit from the the, uh, the lower interest rates that are available to governments at the moment, especially if they're borrowing in bulk, which they are. I mean, I think what one one of the crucial um, questions about you know Michelle's proposal that that has lo you know lots of um, 
potentially strong things in it is whether we'll be be back to normal in January. And I think, you know, the really big question is about international travel. Um, you know, so at the moment, you know, countries have their borders closed. We can see the different effects different strategies are, ha- are having in different countries. But the moment those borders open, then all those bets are off. You know, once people from the UK can go to Germany, then the impact that the, the UK's approach has had reaches Germany and the same for every other country in the world. So I'm not at all certain that international travel will be back to normal in January. And I think that's the risk for universities is, is if they could definitely say, OK, by January we'll be able to start as normal, then that would be very attractive. Unfortunately, the situation is that no one knows where we're going to be in January in these terms. And what this really highlights for me is the importance of policy interventions. You can't leave this to the market. You can't leave it to the interests of individual institutions. You have to have some coordination by policymakers that actually looks after the health of the sector as a whole rather than letting the strongest you know, voices, the most dominant voices, which tend to be prestigious institutions, define a system that suits them but severely hurts other institutions. I think when we look at um, international travel in terms of our student recruitment, we need to think about where we actually bring most of our international and European students from. Europe, it's Italy. Internationally, it's China. These are two countries that have had some of the worst COVID experiences um, to date. And it's going to be very interesting to see what their government policy and strategy is on international movement for their citizens. Obviously, we're we're not that many days away from the moratorium being lifted again. Just 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 before we move on to the next uh, next thing, what what's everyone's prediction on uh, what will happen when we reach that next deadline? Well, I think at that point, the moratorium on offers is obviously going to be released, and we're just going to um, offer ourselves up to the market forces. No, actually, I don't think that. I think we've obviously been uh, uh, kicking the can down the road in recent weeks because we don't want to admit that the recruitment cycle this year is going to be anything other than normal. It's clearly not going to be normal. We do need to do something about it, but I don't think the start of May is going to be the time when that happens. It's a shame. Yeah, I think it'll be extended. And, and, and you know, what, what I hope happens, and, and it's not a, not a prediction because I'm not sure it will, but I think I think that was highlight, highlighted in David's piece on Wonky this morning that actually looking at minimum numbers for institutions rather than just caps for institutions is something that needs to be seriously looked at and considered. Uh, now, uh, uh, Debbie wants a word. So here's Debbie. Hi, it's Debbie here from Team Wonky, letting you know about an event we've got coming up with our partners Isla on 7th of May. In the last month, transferring courses online, universities have done what nobody would have thought possible back in February. And though maybe there's been a few hiccups, everyone's prepared to accept that this is the best that can be done right now. But given it's looking unlikely that universities will be back to business as usual in September, Isla and Wonky are bringing the HE sector together to ask, what would a world-class remote learning experience look like, and how on earth universities can get there in just six short months? There'll be great speakers and great conversation, and of course it'll all be from the comfort of your living room. To find out more, just go to wonky.com forward slash events. We'll see you on the 7th of May in the cloud. Now, September's coming, but with social distancing rules still very much up in the air, we're not really sure what it will look like for our universities. Uh, Durham got caught up in some local disagreement on what will and won't be happening in the autumn uh, this week. So DK caught up with Durham's VC. So I'm here with Stuart Corbridge, the VC of Durham University. Stuart, there's been reports in the media of 25% cuts to modules at Durham. What's going on? Yeah, absolutely, David. So the university is planning to be open as normal in October. Freshers' Week will begin the 28th 
of September, including at our new college, South College. Uh, a full suite of modules will be available to everybody in Durham in the week beginning the 5th of October. Absolutely no change there. That's great. Having said that, like a responsible university, we have to assume there's a small possibility that COVID-19 might resurge in uh, October, November, which means that we're going to ask our colleagues to have an online version of their modules ready. And for that online version, we did originally say, because that's quite a lot of work, you might want to consider taking out 25% of those online modules. Now, it turns out, and I should have known this because my colleagues are exceptionally committed to their students at Durham, nobody wants to take out 25%. Mm. So we're now saying it's up to you. If you can do the full suite of online versions, that's absolutely great. And, and that's where we are. Uh, if the campus is fully open, no change. If we're fully online, apparently no change either, um, just because of uh, my exceptional colleagues. That's good news. I'm sure that staff and current students and prospective students will be glad to hear that. More generally, how has the move to online provision at Durham gone? It's been brilliant. Um, I think we were the first Russell Group University to go wholly online in, in week well, 10. Yes. Yeah, it was week 10 of the second term. We call it the epiphany term here, but the spring term. And, you know, we had to give colleagues very short notice for that. We were advised actually by two of our epidemiologists from our biosciences department. That was a good thing to do for the city. People yeah. stepped up. Amazingly, I've not had a single comment, adverse comment from students about what we did in week 10. Only applause for the fact that colleagues stepped up so quickly. And, and we're planning to do the same if we have to for the Michaelmas term. That's really good to hear. And as you say, academics around the country have gone above and beyond to support their students. But there's other parts of the student experience as well. What are your plans for graduation this year at Durham? Yeah, well, I mean, I do feel very sorry for students graduating this year for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, we obviously can't. Yeah, I mean, we can't hold congregation as normal at the end of June, the beginning of July in the cathedral. So we'll mark it as best we can online. But we will do congregations for this year's graduating students in the cathedral. Um, we're, we're working with the cathedral now on the dates when we can do that. So finally, you know, students will get the, the experience that they deserve and hopefully they'll enter the labour market too in more benign times than they're facing right now. Let's hope so. In all that you've said so far, I hear how proud you are of your staff and the work they've done. Are you able to reassure staff that they will get the support that they need and that their jobs are safe? You know, staff and students are at the heart of any university and, you know, we're a great university. We've got great staff and students across the board and alumni members um, so we constantly need to invest in our staff and thank them for getting teaching online, getting the university closed down, maintaining health and safety at the moment, making sure that the students that are still in Durham, we've got a lot of international students still here, yeah. uh, are being looked after, that they can get takeaway meals and so on and so forth. We're clearly facing uh, a difficult time financially like any university in the UK, and I think everybody understands that. Durham is much better founded financially than almost all universities in the UK. And our first call on resources will be to protect uh, what makes the university's reputation, which is our staff and students. Stuart Corbridge, thank you. Well, there we are. Paul, tell us a bit more about, you know, September, October, November and so on. Well, as you can hear from that piece um, from Durham, you know, it's it's uncertainty about what's going to happen um, in September. You know, financial uncertainty for institutions, will they be sustainable? No clear position on what's going to happen with international students, although the most likely thing is that they won't be here in September. 
um, uncertainty about enrolments, uncertainty about how academics and students will be working and living because we don't know how the pandemic's going to develop between now and then. And clearly that's going to present huge challenges for staff and for students who are returning to their studies, whether they're under, undergraduate, um, taught postgraduate or postgraduate research students. Um, but if we do take in new undergraduates um, in September or October, then, then there needs to be some real thought about how we, how we handle that and how we support those students. Clearly, the end of their pre-university course has been massively disrupted and, and, and ended in a, in a way that makes them feel very uncertain and was a very unclear ending. Um, they have, would have had huge uncertainty about what they're studying and where they're studying. And then even once they know that, um, as the interview with the VC at Durham shows, it's not at all clear what kind of course will they have. Will it be an online course? Will it be a face-to-face -face course? And we know from research that those first few weeks of study are absolutely crucial. You know, students' retention and academic success is really founded on the social and academic engagement that they gain in those first few weeks of study. And if it is set up on an online environment, then, you know, there's a real site there for inequalities to be perpetuated. So there'll be differences in the home environment the students have, you know, do they have a quiet space space to work? Do they have somewhere where they can easily exercise and get fresh air? Um, are there abusive relationships at home that stop them studying? And also within their home environment, how, how many other people do they have who are familiar with higher education and can help them to understand how these things work? So if universities do admit um, students in September and those students do start studying online, there's a huge piece of work to be done to think about how we address these situations so that we don't just perpetuate existing inequalities that you know you know one of the things for me about higher education generally is that we often mistake um, social privilege for ability we often think that, that students who've had the most um, rich educational opportunities are the brightest rather than it being a reflection of those opportunities and this situation is one in which that could be massively reinforced and institutions have a responsibility to really work through how they're going to address that in a fair and transparent way. Michelle, what's your sense of, you know, what's possible and what isn't in, you know, the, 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 the kind of early months of next of the, of, the, of the autumn term? I think the one thing we have to really get to grips with, we are not going to resume normality for a while. So all the things that we would instinctively lift and shift from one year to the other in terms of how we would bring our returners back and our new students back, we need to rethink. And I think we have to think about it now because we need to start planning. We have a duty of care and responsibility to all our students, including our COVID graduates this year and our staff. You know, our staff at the moment are under immense pressure to try and find alternative ways to assess the students. So they are equally in kind of quite an emotionally challenging time. Leaders and managers I appreciate they have a lot on their plate, but as a sector, we need to start thinking and planning now how we support our returning students because of the disruption and change in the expectations they have experienced this academic year. And remember, whenever the students come back, they will not have been on campus since March. And so in a way, we're almost bringing them on in terms of maybe being a new student and re-engaging them with areas that may have developed or changed, policies that have changed. I think it's essential that we keep the communications going through the summer 
with our students until they return, whenever that is, to try and keep a connectedness to them. And so, you know, I've already suggested bring the returners back, including our placement students, back mid to late October by level of study and provide an effective returners orientation, what I call reorientation, and a returners induction to study, what I call reinduction at each level. And what this does is provide staff with adequate time to concentrate on each level and get them embedded back into their studies. They need to be reminded of the support available and we need to bridge any skill gaps. You know, asking them how they're feeling so we can actually identify the support they need as a cohort is going to be essential. And I've spoken about a pre-arrival questionnaire for new students and that could be adopted and adapted for returners. As Paul's already highlighted, we need to be mindful of the emotional well-being and mental health impact of our students of lockdown and COVID. You know, and this has very much been highlighted in the NUS COVID report. And we need to plan for how we're going to deal with any fallout when at university, because it will be on our doorstep. So it's not something we can turn around and say, pull up the drawbridge. We're not going to deal with it. You know, the students will be in our care. So I think we need to work with Student Minds and the NHS and other mental health charities to get the guidance in place that we can actually put it on our websites for returners and for new students and actually help guide them on how they're feeling the type of um, situations that could actually evoke emotions, but also pinpoint and, ta and target information where they can go and visit it. Let me give you a couple of examples of the common challenges that staff are going to face when students come back. Firstly, the exams have been cancelled in 2019-20 with alternative assessments. And so for many level four and five students, we may see an increase in failure rates at the next level because when they take their exams for the first time, and they would have maybe dropped out in level four, it's going to push the attrition rate up. So introducing, say, summative assessments that account for a small percentage of the overall grade could help with their main examination preparation. Across the sector, level four generally doesn't count. So level five is going to be pivotal for those students. And if they've not had exam preparation, that could be a real problem. Secondly, we're going to have students whose courses are quite lab and workshop based, and they may not have been able to have the opportunity to develop the hands-on skills, prereq skills required to progress because of the shutdown. And so we need to equip them with those skills by weaving activities into the upcoming course delivery. But this type of adaption, it takes time to plan. We've also got to be mindful that students who are required to undertake a placement in 2021 may not be able to obtain one. And so we've got a plan for larger final year cohorts and potentially make changes to the academic rules and regulations requiring a placement for a sandwich degree. Bringing back returners in October and level three and four and postgraduates in January, if we are able to, will require careful planning and a mapping of assessment and examination boards. But it is very doable. D D DK, I mean, you're, you're familiar, for instance, with, you know, the, the HESA data set that, that at least gives us some clues about how intensively worked uh, our campuses are in terms of space. Even if what Michelle describes was possible from a kind of teaching and learning and student support point of view, is it possible from a sort of campus point of view? Well, at this point, we have to consider the plight of university planning teams. Um, it's been a good life being a planner over the last few years, um, if you're in the right kind of institution, of course. Uh, we've had a lot of really good, high-quality data. We're getting really good at using it. So making a plan for the next one, two, three or five years is just as simple as extrapolating from a line graph. Unfortunately, this year, all bets are off. 
the changes in the data from COVID-19 have completely destroyed the data record for for 2019-20. It's liable that what, that what went previously is not going to be comparable to what comes after either. So very much we're looking... Uh, we're kind of shooting in the dark. We can't rely on extrapolation or previous trends. We have to build scenarios. Now, there's lots of potential scenarios that could be built. Uh, so many, in fact, that there might be a temptation just not to do any and just manage day to day, as many providers have been doing. But it is important that we do keep planning. We do keep building and testing these scenarios. And the idea of um, a January start um, is one of these scenarios it's got impacts if the quality of the model of the institution is good enough it should be easy to see what would need to happen to make this work in terms of estate in terms of staffing in terms of accommodation in terms of offer making and recruitment so it's all there to play for but we really need the quality of planning and the quality of leadership the person the uh the Board of Governors or the Vice Chancellor that has to make the decision in the end, even though to get the decision wrong may have significant downsides. We still need to be making decisions. Not making decisions is not going to help us in the short to medium term or the long term. And, and Paul, it's tricky this, isn't it? Because, you know, even if something is deemed to be okay now by government, you know, if, uh, you know, the, if we get, you know, some vague social distancing rules that universities have to then interpret, that's no guarantee that students and staff will behave in a way that says, yeah, we're willing to take any, any risk that, that, that might be perceived to be there. You know, we only have to look, I guess, at that final week when face to face teaching had ceased, but librarians were still at work and there was a lot of kickoff about that. Yeah. And I think people are always going to, you know, reinterpret the, the advice that's given to them, make decisions based on their own personal circumstances. And people need to be allowed to have the space to do that. I mean, I think when you think about this in relation to policy implementation, you can either position that as a flaw with the implementation, or you can position it as an, as an inevitable part of the process and try and take account of it. And I do think there's some really interesting questions raised here about, about how we think about higher education. You know, kind of research and policy in higher education kind of almost behave, is almost um, created as if higher education is the sum of the institutions. You know, and I think this situation kind of throws that into sharp relief. So if we take the um, Michelle's idea of not starting till January, that raises this question about what are people going to do between you know, September and January when they would have been doing a course. Now, if you take the kind of higher education is the individual institution's perspective, then what you would say is, okay, well, they can do pre-arrival coursework. But another way of thinking about that is that actually what universities could do would be to take responsibility for the people in their particular area rather than the students they see as their students and work out how they can work with those people who are going to go to a university later on and do things with them and help to coordinate work in that local community which moves away from this idea that it's all about institutions. Again, for an institution where you're incredibly worried about your financial survival, you know, it is responsible for you just to think in terms of your institution. And this is where we come back to what I mentioned before, that policy needs to then help to move things beyond that and move away from individual institutional interests to something that actually focuses on how universities as a whole can make a contribution in this incredibly difficult situation. 
So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com, where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory, or you'll find the feeds you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Michelle, Paul and DK, everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen. And of course, to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.